more sources of worry about being impure. It's like you don't, it doesn't actually take you to a state of completion by itself. You're feeling completely, you know, clear in, in the terms of the, what morality is supposed to be about, which is to recognize a sense of freedom from freedom from blame, freedom from remorse, freedom from from worry. So it's called the bliss, the happiness of a of a mind that's free from any kind of regret or anxiety. So while we're in this state of of Sila can take us so far and yet it's not completed until it actually feels blissful. And when we look at uh, the whole level of sila of morality, then certainly it can come from the feeling of, well, this is what they told me to do. This is what it says in the book. This is what they told me to do. If I don't do it, then somebody will criticise me. You know, they'll look down on me, or they'll criticise me, not even blast me. You know, for being impure and so forth. So we can actually be doing it with this anxiety. Not really, un- not really actually looking into the mind, but with this, this negative influence around our actions, like a temerity, hesitation, and worry. So that doesn't, that's not going to bring around completion, is it? It's, it's a hindrance. Interestingly enough, the Buddha, uh, who is you know an exemplary standard. You know, very very refined standard said this is nothing much this isn't the main you know this is just a kind of minor matter you know as far as the fact that I don't say I don't talk on worldly talk I only talk on purely on Dhamma and Vinaya and you know, really refined level of speech conduct not only doesn't swear or 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 um, wheedle or cajole or insinuate or say sarcastic thing kind of minor little defects in in speech even but it doesn't even talk about Kings and heroes and wars and and well village talk, you know, very very high level of sila. And yet the Buddha says, oh, "This is this isn't the, this isn't the main thing. This isn't really the the um, the completion of it, fulfilment of it." So we wonder, well, how how good do you have to get before you really completed it? And in terms of. Uh, Say our, our actions when we're trying to do things that are good and helpful for, for others, then uh, we can um, put a lot of effort into doing things we think might be helpful and good for others, good for the world, good for the uh, companions, good for our family, good for the monastery. And yet that doesn't, you never get to the end of that either, you noticed. The work never finishes. Things never finish. And things when things have we seem to have something in terms of our outward activities, we've done something then if you've worked on something physically, then it probably starts to decline after you finish. It needs doing again, repainting, fixing, maintaining. If you're working more in terms of, of helping other people, um, then people don't always receive help very well. People misunderstand it. 
or you try your best to make someone happy or cheerful or better state of mind than they were before and maybe they don't uh, receive it or they're not happier or better and you can feel really disappointed what do I have to do to make this thing work now certainly in both these areas I've put a fair amount of effort into it both these kind of areas because I could see um, in my own life that those things were needed to be encouraged my sealer was not very good mine was fuzzy, imprecise, slapdash uh, one could become very not uh, unhelpful but just very unconscious of other people <coughs> sort of locked into oneself very concerned about oneself and how one's own happiness and one's own interests and one's own amusements and one's own life and actually without necessarily being un- uh, evil to people just not really picking up not really being that watchful or aware or that bothered so I could see both these areas were very imperfect you know. so it was my life as a bhikkhu I'm trying to work, develop those things in terms of the the sila, the vinya training, then I spent several years getting into it in a very, very thorough way. We used to have these long classes and sessions on diff- going through all the training was very fine, and the more refined you could get it, then the better it was. You know, the more exact and clear, and the more you really understood it, and you very strict standards of, of that training. Mm-hmm. But I could see that. that uh, results of it were, while in that state, actually ones didn't feel any purer, and you tended to feel, always got to defend it, you know, uphold the standards all the time. So you might be in a situation where maybe you can't be that refined. Um, Like, you know, we have this, we have a training about not eating food afternoon, so this could be taken in our training to, this includes milk, you see. It also includes things like if you have orange juice and it's got little bits of flesh floating around in it. You know, though one would be extremely pressed to make a decent meal out of that, those little bits of orange. But then technically, you know, if you're really crisp and clear on this, amounts to a little bit of food, so you shouldn't drink it. And that's that's okay if you're in a monastery where people understand these things and they don't. But then you go to somebody's house and they give you what you're supposed to do, you know. What are you doing? Give me this orange juice. You know, you're trying to stain my purity. Or you put it in a plant pot. Or what do you do? You know, or you go to tea with the vicar, and his wife turns up and gives you a cup of tea with milk in it. So you can kind of you can get these areas of anxiety of trying to either casually leave it there and say, "You haven't drunk your tea. Uh, it's <laughs> fine. I'm, I'm just getting around to it. You know, something wrong with the tea? No, no, it's lovely tea." You know. <laughs> But you haven't drunk any of it, it's getting cold, I'll pour you another cup. <laughs> and you're trying to make something, you know. Well, what do you do? You know, oh, well, I'll slug it back and you know, I've stained myself again. How can I hold, <laughs> hold myself up in the middle of the Sangha, saying, you know, you know, I've been a monk 10 years, 15 years or so, and I'm casually slugging back milk like a, like a kind of uncouth worldling. And then if you go to other monasteries where perhaps they're not so strict, you can start to feel that there's a slight mild disdain. 
those monks aren't going to practice. You know. So you get you can, these aren't these aren't not very nice. You know. uh, so you get the kind of uptight and slightly dis- disdain, or you can think, well, we're, you know, we're, I'm really much better and pure than what than them. But you're actually uptight, anxious, rather <laughs> <but> pure. <laughs> I mean, where's the where's the kind of sense of enjoyment of all this stuff, you know? So you have to spend your whole life just worrying about maintaining these things and making sure. Then you've got to you try to teach to other people. You know, you've got these junior monks. You've got to keep an eagle eye on them. Make sure not, you know, know that probably in their rooms they do all kinds of evil little things. <laughs> <laughs> It shouldn't be doing, you know. So you get this kind of uh, watch, watchful eye <laughs> around everybody, and you feel yourself cringing. Everybody, somebody clangs their arms bowling properly, or ch- st- stabs their food in their arms, moments a kind of crunching sound, or fails in some kind of mind observing. Oh God, I've got to explain that again. You stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> The next year, you know, another lot of junior monks come along. And say, oh, here we go again! I've got to give my life to telling people about how to hold a teapot or how to. And you think, oh, I'm knocking myself out for. So then you can think, well, I'm bothered with any of it. Let it go your own way. It doesn't seem right either. In terms of effort, uh, you know, you think I've made quite a in my own terms anyway, quite an amount of effort to do things for the Sangha, to work hard for the Sangha and whatever I can do. And then one recognises that um, the results of that aren't always, people don't always appreciate it very much. Um, Which I don't want to make a, don't want to start getting a (laughs) self-pity about, but you know, I'm not really appreciated. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, it's something you didn't like very much, or that people don't say, "Well, that was really nice, thank you very much." They say, "Oh, well, I just didn't like that." People are generally more easy, more easy about saying what was wrong with things. And I think perhaps it's just human nature. I'm sure I do the same myself. I'm not blaming anybody. Particularly, it's just a sort of tray. I think people often appreciate things, as I hope they do, but they come out with a slight re- reservation. So, yeah, that was, it was a pity we had to do that. You know. Last year we did a retreat, and I thought it'd be really nice to have a, maybe we could have a retreat during the Vasa. It'd be a very nice thing to have happen for everybody, have a break, we've been working quite hard. And I, I'd just been invited over to, um, to California, to, to a funeral of this chi- Chinese master in California, and then we did this. Uh, we had this. They have a big monastery there, and everybody, they're really into kind of these devotional practices. They do lots of chanting and and devotions to the various bodhisattvas and Buddhas and patriarchs and all that kind of thing. And you do a lot of this sort of chanting and bowing and processing. And then you just it starts at three o'clock in the three thirty in the morning. It just goes on all day, and after about two or three days of this stuff, there's nothing left in your mind, you know, you're basically just all cleaned out because you've just been kind of basically programmed. So all you can say is Namo Amitabha Buddha at the end of the day, which is not a bad thing to say actually. A lot of worse things you can say. 
So I got pretty high out of all this stuff. You've got about a thousand people getting into it, and you're floating along, feeling really good. Oh, we can do that. So I came back here. I thought, just, you know, you've got to do a bit easy. So I thought, we'll just do a little bit, you know, maybe 10 minutes. And so, quarter hour. My offering. My little thought was to offer something very nice. So we used to go out and pro- walk around the stupa in the mornings and the evenings just for t- quarter of an hour, 20 minutes or so. Then we did the retreat, month retreat. And I thought I'd have it in here where it'd be more spacious. And then I said, <laughs> uh, you know, to ask people how, how they felt about the retreat. I was cold. <laughs> didn't like all that walking around in circles. Didn't, didn't feel very devoted at all, just felt cold. Say, oh, well, what did you think? I said, yeah, well, you know, I don't think I can be forced to be devotional. It's got to happen naturally. I, you know, I'm getting frog marked if you've been devotional. Oh, okay. what, what did you think? <laughs> so you think, oh dear, I guess I did it all wrong. I really did. I really did it wrong, didn't I? You know, really made a mess of that. Me being big, me trying to force my stuff on people again. You know, you start blaming yourself, and after a while, you, you know, you go through that one. Then feeling, well, I should never teach anybody after all. It's kind of hopeless, useless. And then, then you start to think, why doesn't anybody say? Well, you know, it wasn't. It was quite nice actually, Bunty. It was better than listening to pneumatic drills. And at least, you know, when you give a talk, I can always doze off for a little while. You know, it's kind of soothing anyway. <laughs> so I can get these kind of fluxes and flows of emotions. And uh, and I've certainly done the same thing myself. You know, somebody does something, and how does that? Oh, I didn't like that. I don't see why you have to do this. This attitude comes up. It's just way that people's minds often seem to go. We're not very good at expressing things in gratitude and enjoyment. And yet the result is you can feel like you get the sense of you know, you're trying to do something from a what you think is feeling of helpfulness and then realise it doesn't help really. You know. Um and then you feel frustrated and so on. So the and that 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 one can then as I thought, well hell, maybe there's a better way I could do something to make it right. Try this, try that, try this, try that. And then with both of these things, like with the What's happening is there's always some sense of wanting something back from it. Like, you know, want to do something and people look happy. People feel pleased. That's what I'd like. People feel inspired or people get enlightened. People feel, oh, that was a great, I want to remain a nun forever. I love being a nun. It's so wonderful. It's so wonderfully ecstatic experience, joy and contentment with the requisites and these kind of things I like to hear rather than than, than, feeling (laughs) 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 you know 
And so you get you really want something back. And so you get you don't get it back, then you, you feel suffering. And I think the same thing with the, the meditation, you know, you think if I do this really well then my mind will calm down and I'll become concentrated and calm and you know, you want something back. I don't think this is unusual. You're doing it so in order to get a particular result, to get something out of it. That's natural enough. And this is as far as it goes in terms of self, in terms of myself. That's as far as it goes. It doesn't go beyond, I want something back. This is why it's never completed. As long as the self involved, it's never completed. And self may not be a selfish, arrogant thing. It may not be me being bossy and arrogant and hard-hearted and miserable and greedy. It may be just me with a little bit of a hook on things, saying, can I have a result, please? Could I make this thing, this unpleasant thing go away so that I'd feel differently? Could I arrive at some kind of state where I felt I'd got, you know, can I have something back, please? A sort of subtle whisper sometimes. A justifiable whisper. A whisper but with the Dhamma, you don't get away with a whisper. If you want something back, then you experience frustration, disappointment, incompletion. And in terms of the, in terms of our meditation or dealing with our inner world, with its various tensions and, and things we don't like about ourselves, and we don't like not liking them and we wish it would hurry up and, and be peaceful and when will it go away and how long do I have to keep going on it these are natural enough things but uh, it doesn't it is never going to get anywhere apart from I want something back and no matter how hard you try as far as I can see you never get it if the self system worked then putting more and more effort and energy into it, it would be possible to get it. I don't see it. I don't see it that way. It doesn't seem to happen. I've put quite a lot of effort into that. I don't see it happen that way. If you do, then congratulations. The Buddha talked uh, about the development of the path in terms of detachment, dispassion, cessation and relinquishment and he said some various things to help, to help remind us exactly what this means like he said you know my morality though you may think it's high and impeccable is nothing much no big thing that's not the excellence that's not the completion of it there may be other monks and recluses who are even finer, you know, who've got even higher standards than me. I don't see this as the excellence. When questioned about the cultivation of um, Brahma Vihara, of the four kinds of love, of kindness, compassion, joy for others' welfare, beautiful qualities, evenness, disposition, serenity, he said, um, 
other other people do this, and there are other wanderers of other sects who do exactly the same thing. But what they don't know, what they haven't done, is they haven't done it based on detachment, dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. They may develop loving kindness for this and compassion for that, but they haven't seen its essence. They haven't seen its fruit. They haven't seen its maturity. They haven't seen its completion. And it's completed through this, these themes of detachment, dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. And similarly, for the very factors that make up meditation, factors called the enlightenment factors, they're called. You see, these are completed in dispassion, in detachment, cessation, and relinquishment. He had himself studied under several teachers who had uh, profound experiences of concentration and calm, things that we can barely understand, such uh, refined and lofty levels of calm. And the Buddha, when he was still unenlightened, did all this. You see, this is not the excellence. This is not the fruit. This is not the completion. And then began to cultivate these qualities, detachment, dispassion, <coughs> cessation, and relinquishment to bring around the completion of it. And what these things involve, really, is a stepping back out from the world of results and time and me a stepping back from the the appearance of you and the future and something out there that is that I'm getting feedback off of and a collecting into the very quality itself in itself so for example we're practicing kindness in one way, of course, in order to practice kindness, we have to be some kind of object we're practicing it towards. And yet, if you hang on to it that way, there's always the feeling of, would you please be better now? Could you please be healthy now? Could you please be happy now? There's always that hanging on, isn't there? But if we cultivate that for somebody else, or for another being, or for this our own body, and yet the attention is drawn into the quality itself so that it's not for anybody else or for me, it's just for itself. Then it's cultivated with dispassion. Then it's cultivated in terms of cessation because that fretful nagging of when will it be all right? When will you be fine? When will I be better? stops because we're not looking in that way anymore we're not looking in terms of me and it we're looking in terms of the quality itself and focusing on that so there's a relinquishment there's a stopping of that hankering and there's a relinquishment as if that stopping <coughs> is as we focus more fully on it 
we collect ourselves in it, we make much of it, as a relinquishment of the underlying tendencies that keep bringing back suffering, even on a refined level. The feeling of, how am I doing? I am this. How are you doing? How is it, is it working? That kind of restless demand for completion in terms of me, or you, or the world, or Sangha, or Buddhism, or anything. And then there's completion. It doesn't hinder us in terms of our action, but it makes our action free and tireless and beyond disappointment. So then it's the essence of it. And similarly, if we cultivate the quality of sila, one can get very righteous about it, one can get uh, irritated by refinements of things, and then you recognize that these are not, this isn't the point of it. The point is not doing this because uh, of fear or anxiety or to ultimately to support some tradition or because one would be seen as being an impeccable virtuous being or that somehow it alone will mean that one is free of, of the one is liberated but doing it because of the clarity because of the attentiveness because of the integrity that it brings around that it brings to fruition in one's own mind and one is not Sliding, one is not dismissing, one is not casually saying, oh, I don't really know, I'm not with that. And yet one isn't going into the other extreme, which is, this is the way it's got to be, it's, you know, I'm virtuous, you know, look at me, that kind of thing. It's, it's not about the world, it's not about myself, it's about itself. And then if we can let go into that, there is the quality of ease and happiness, because the nagging self-view is released. In terms of uh, meditation, uh, inner, if you like, the work on in stillness, focusing on the mind and its patterns, Are we doing this to get rid of our hindrances, our defilements, our grudges, uptightness, fears, wounds, defences and so on? Yes. And yet, as long as one is actually managing or acting in that way, I don't know how it is for you, but they don't really go away. They kind of go down they pop back up again. And sometimes it seems that the very effort one's putting in actually dredges up more because then we get more and more nervous and more and more self-conscious and perhaps even critical of ourselves. We don't actually find a space of release. Ask yourself, do you find meditation an experience of enjoyment? And then you may kind of have a little chuckle over that very concept. 
You know, it's not enjoyable, is it? Perhaps it's not enjoyable. Uh, is it peaceful? Is it fruitful? Or is it just a hard, uphill grind, patiently battling away, thinking with some kind of feeling of faith that eventually, well, you know, does get better? Yes, it does get better that way. But it doesn't get completed that way. It gets better so far, and then there's this residual percentage that never seems to, you can't flick it off because the very system of approach keeps bringing you back in. It's rather like mopping a floor, trying to clean a floor that you're walking on. So you keep leaving muddy footprints. And as you turn around and wipe up those footprints, you find out where you were standing, you left muddy footprints. So you step somewhere else and you wipe that up and you've left muddy footprints. And how do you get, how do you, you know, how do you get out of this syndrome? Now, meditation is a cultivation of insight, of of really seeing what is present fully, completely. And I think that most people begin to recognize how the mind does get into tunnel vision, does its nature is to get obsessed. When the suffering, we get magnetized by it. We tend to minds very easily constrict, constricts and contracts down to small points. You can find little ideas in your mind suddenly become infuriating. A tiny little sound, like the sound of these speakers, becomes, in, you know, a source of major irritation. A little tiny little insect crawling in your skin becomes unbearable torment. The mind kind of has this obsessive feature to it. And the Buddha said that, that uh, this teaching is rather like for people who've got a little dust in their eye. I don't know what you feel like when you've got dust in your eye. But you don't notice the eye that doesn't have dust in it. You notice this eye which has got a bit of grit in it. Oh, my goodness. You know, suddenly no awareness of feet, of ears, of belly button. You know, it all disappears. It's just this eyeball with a half a coal mine in it, you know, which is weeping and throbbing, and you know, and you take out a tiny, tiny little grain. You think, oh my goodness! And yet, that little grain in your eye wiped out the rest of the world. You can wipe out the rest of the world. You've got a bee sting, something like that. A little thing. The rest of your body disappears. It's just that pain. And when you've got the grit of dust in your eye, you don't notice the eye that doesn't. Similarly, when one's meditating, once one notices the, the hindrance, we don't notice the non-hindrance. So insight is really to encourage us to notice the non-hindrance that's, all, that's present. Anybody, well, anybody who starts to look a beginner can see the hindrance. The beginner doesn't see the non-hindrance. That takes that takes insight. And it takes the process perhaps of recognizing that the hindrance comes and goes, changes, of beginning to recognize one's relationship to that problem, one's fear of it, one's uh, emotional reactions to it, one's despair, one's frustration, one's anger, one's whole kind of sense of 
self knotting up around things and through recognizing the impermanence of things the changeability of things and that these things are not self then there's an ability to recognize something beyond the hindrance that you don't recognize otherwise if one's focus is not insightful it tends to be obsessive so that the hindrance becomes seemingly permanent and very much oneself so we begin to recognize we are I am jealous I am possessive I am into control I am uptight I am narrow-minded I am not loving I am you know ooh. more and more these senses of what I am build up and we become very blocked. So the practice of insight is, is to start to recognize maybe, oh, there's jealousy. Mm-hmm. And not, oh, jealousy, oh, oh no, you know, dear, oh dear, yeah, Buddha shouldn't have jealousy, yeah, get rid of that. Oh, not another one. You know, all that tremble, 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 oh, maybe slap some metal on top of it, maybe that'll make it go away. I've been doing this for meta, more meta, data. <laughs> go away you know, this is uh, not really it is it so it gets to that kind of bareness to actually allow the recognition of jealousy fear from a place of coolness that's the cultivation that in fact we are beginning to collect ourselves into the quality of attention itself rather than into what we're attending to the other I of meditation so that there's a stopping there's a detachment detachment is when we're actually able to step back and see you know, there's a hindrance Dispassion is when we're no longer getting in a, in a state about it. We're no longer kind of getting panicky and agitated or fearful or defensive or trying to shove it away. Dispassion. Cessation means it begins to stop the kind of patterns that build up around it and the suffering with it. And relinquishment comes as a result of that that which supports the hindrance is relinquished and what supports all hindrances is the sense of wanting a position wanting to be wanting to have wanting to feel something wanting to feel a strong feeling wanting to have a convincing experience wanting to arrive at a special state wanting to be there untroubled ownership control, thirst for feeling thirst for passion, thirst for achievement, thirst for becoming thirst for being something thirst for being nothing thirst for being thirst for having thirst for getting rid of and these are the things that support all the hindrances so the hindrance is an indicator it's a practice point if you cultivate it insightfully the hindrance 
is like a, a thorn in the flesh that won't go away until you've understood how unconsciously one is supporting it through this thirst. And with a modicum of experience and faith, and this, you know, the encouragement to practice awareness of suffering, our selfhood, full awareness of it, then we begin to know, recognize or experience the non-greed around the greed, the non-fear around the fear, the non-worry around the worry, the non-self around the self, the mind through which these things pass, the mind of meditation, the mind of freedom. But of course, that hasn't got any particular flavour, it doesn't have a kick to it, it does not a passionate, wow, you've got it experience. Non-greed is not, wow, non-greed, you know, got hit by some non-greed. Greed is, wow, bang, you know, <laughs> Non-greed isn't. Do you notice the times when you're not greedy? The moment, you know? Or is it just when one's, one's mind isn't caught up with some craving for something that we're just feeling slightly addled now, thinking about something else and distracted. We neglect the non-greed, we neglect the non-aversion. I don't believe that people can be averse continually, even though you may think you are. But when there's non-aversion, who notices it? Who cares? What does non-aversion feel like? I mean, if I felt radiant, blissful, ecstatic love, yeah, but non-aversion. I feel non-aversion 99% of the time. You know, but I have one moment of aversion. Oh, you know, God, problem with aversion. Oh, there I am, all these years I've been practicing, I've still got aversion in my mind. Oh dear. Suddenly, that one moment becomes the grip in the eye. The moments of non-aversion are not recognised because they're dispassionate. Cooling. So this is, like you know, the essential quality of what the Buddha's teaching is so special for, because it, it's based on that which is difficult to see, and yet somehow very obvious if one is encouraged to recognise it. The completion of virtue. The completion of good action. The completion of meditation is in non-self, is in not wanting something back, is in recognizing the completion now in ourselves, in our experience. Now the thoughts and feelings, pleasant, 
and unpleasant. But now is knowing, is recognition. Now we may have some kind of longing for something to go away, to have enough of this, and didn't get the point. There's this and there's that, and I shouldn't be thinking this, I should be feeling inspired. But now there's knowing, isn't there? You can, you can actually, if you open up and comprehend the condition, grasp the condition, hold it carefully, you can recognize the non-conditioned, if you like, that, that within which it occurs. This is what we develop, make much of with insight, practice of insight. And this is the completion of all the paths of the Dhamma. So I'll for this for your reflection. <coughs>